Welcome to Daily Airs. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Rowe, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. April 11, on this date in history in the year 1977, President Jimmy Carter, along with First Lady Rosalind Carter, hosts local children at the traditional White House Easter Egg Roll. According to the White House curator Bill Allman, the curious tradition of egg rolling on the White House lawn originated in the mid to late 19th century. First Lady Dolly Madison is sometimes credited with proposing the idea of a public egg roll around 1810, and several first families may have held similar events privately prior to 1872. Newspaper articles described the first public egg rolling event as having occurred on the congressional grounds in 1872. In 1876, foot traffic from hordes of children and their families during an egg roll caused so much damage to the congressional grounds that legislators were forced to pass the turf protection law to prevent further damage. In doing so, they outlawed the future use of congressional grounds for public events. Disappointed D.C. children had to wait two years before President Rutherford B. Hayes hosted the first official Easter egg roll on the White House grounds in 1878. Since then, nearly every presidential administration has hosted this special children's event unless war or bad weather forced its cancellation or relocation to another venue. The egg roll was suspended from the White House grounds for 12 long years between America's entry into World War II in 1941 and the end of Eisenhower's White House renovations in 1953. In addition to the traditional Easter egg roll, participants, usually including the president's family, were treated to music, food, games, pony rides, souvenirs, and a visit by the Easter Bunny. In 1969, First Lady Pat Nixon donned the Easter Bunny costume, and during Reagan's two terms, Attorney General Edwin Meese's wife, Ursula, wore the bunny costume six times. Ursula Meese thus earned the nickname of Meester Bunny in the Reagan White House. In 1974, President Nixon allowed organizers to borrow spoons for the egg roll from the White House kitchen. Since its inception, the Easter egg roll has grown increasingly elaborate. In 1977, President Carter added a circus and petting zoo to the day's entertainment. In 1981, Easter revelers could attend Broadway show performances or climb into the basket of a hot air balloon tethered to the ground. During the Clinton administration, organizers started a second tradition of inviting individual states to send an egg decorated by one of their local artists to the White House for display. April 12. On this date in history, in the year 1954, Bill Haley and his comets record Rock Around the Clock. Bill Haley and his comets recorded we're gonna rock around the clock. If rock and roll was a social and cultural revolution, then we're gonna rock around the clock was a declaration of independence. And if Bill Haley was not exactly the revolution's Thomas Jefferson, it may be fair to call him its John Hancock. 
Bill Haley put his enormous signature on rock and roll history during the final 40 minutes of a three-hour recording session in New York City, a session set up not for the recording of We're Gonna Rock Around the Clock, but of a song called 13 Women and Only One Man in Town. It took the group nearly all of their scheduled session to get a usable take of 13 Women, a song that was entirely new to them but was chosen as the A-side of their upcoming single by their new record label, Decca. With time running out and no chance of extending the session, Haley and his Comets were eager to lay down the song they'd been playing live for many months to enthusiastic audience response. The lead guitarist brought in for the session, Danny Cedrone, had not had time to work up a new solo for the instrumental break on We're Gonna Rock Around the Clock, so he repurposed one he'd used on a Haley recording two years earlier called Rock This Joint. Cedrone was paid $31 for his work that evening, which included performing what is still recognized as one of the greatest guitar solos of all time. Haley and the band had time for only two takes, and in the first, they played so loud that Haley's vocals were almost inaudible on tape. In an era before multi-track recording, the only solution was to do a second take with minimal accompaniment and hope for the best. Later, a DECA engineer painstakingly spliced together segments from both takes. A near miracle, given the technology of 1954. The finished version was judged good enough to include as the B-side on 13 Women, which was released in May 1954. The single sold a respectable but underwhelming 75,000 copies in the coming months and was destined to be forgotten until a 10-year-old kid in Los Angeles flipped 13 women and fell in love with the now-famous B-side. That kid, Peter Ford, happened to be son of actor Glenn Ford, who was slated to be star in the upcoming teenage delinquency drama Blackboard Jungle. Peter turned his father on to We're Gonna Rock Around the Clock, and soon enough, the song was chosen to play over the opening credits of Blackboard Jungle, which is how it became a pop sensation, selling a million copies in a single month in the spring of 1955. April 13. On this date in history, in the year 1742, Handel's Messiah premieres in Dublin. Nowadays, the performance of George Friedrich Handel's Messiah Oratorio at Christmas time is a tradition almost as deeply entrenched as decorating trees and hanging stockings. In churches and concert halls around the world, the most famous piece of sacred music in the English language is performed full and abridged, both with and without audience participation, but almost always as exclusively during the weeks leading up to the celebration of Christmas. It would surprise many, then, to learn that Messiah was not originally intended as a piece of Christmas music. Messiah received its world premiere on April 13, 1742, during the Christian season of Lent, and in the decidedly secular context of a concert hall in Dublin, Ireland. The inspiration for Messiah came from a scholar and editor named Charles Jennings, a devout and evangelical Christian deeply concerned with the rising influence of deism and other strains of enlightenment, thought that he and others regarded as irreligious. 
drawing on source material in the King James Bible and the Book of Common Prayer, Jennings compiled and edited a concise distillation of Christian doctrine from Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah's coming through the birth, crucifixion, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then to the promised second coming and day of judgment. Jennings took his libretto to his friend George Frederick Handel and proposed that it form the basis of an oratorio expressly intended for performance in a secular setting during the week immediately preceding Easter. Messiah would be directed at people who had come to the theater rather than a church during Passion Week, according to the Cambridge Handel scholar Ruth Smith, to remind them of their supposed faith in their possible fate. This didactic mission may have inspired Jennings to write Messiah, but it is fair to say that George Friedrich Handel's transcendent music is what made the work so timeless and inspirational. Messiah gained widespread popularity only during the final years of Handel's life, in the late 1750s, but it remains one of the best-known musical works of the Baroque period more than two centuries later. When you consider that Handel composed the work of Messiah in just 24 days, you begin to understand the incredible esteem in which some of his followers held him. As Ludwig von Beethoven said of Handel, He is the greatest composer that ever lived. I would uncover my head and kneel before his tomb. April 14. On this date in history, in the year 1865, John Wilkes Booth shoots Abraham Lincoln. President Abraham Lincoln is shot in the head at Ford's Theater in Washington, D.C. on April 14, 1865. The assassin, actor John Wilkes Booth, shouted, Six Semper Tyrannus, ever thus two tyrants, the South is avenged. As he jumped onto the stage and fled on horseback, Lincoln died the next morning. Booth, who remained in the North during the war despite his Confederate sympathies, initially plotted to capture President Lincoln and take him to Richmond, the Confederate capital. However, on March 20, 1865, the day of the planned kidnapping, the president failed to appear at the spot where Booth and his six fellow conspirators lay in wait. Two weeks later, Richmond fell to Union forces. In April, with Confederate armies near collapse across the South, Booth hatched a desperate plan to save the Confederacy. Learning that Lincoln was to attend Laura Keene's acclaimed performance, in Our American Cousin at Ford's Theater on April 14, Booth plotted the simultaneous assassination of Lincoln, Vice President Andrew Johnson, and Secretary of State William H. Seward. By murdering the president and two of his possible successors, Booth and his conspirators hoped to throw the U.S. government into a paralyzing disarray. On the evening of April 14, conspirator Louis T. Powell burst into Secretary of State Seward's home, seriously wounding him and three others while George A. Atzerod, assigned to Vice President Johnson, lost his nerve and fled. Meanwhile, just after 10 p.m., Booth entered Lincoln's private theater box unnoticed and shot the president with a single bullet in the back of the head. Although Booth had broken his left leg jumping from Lincoln's box, he succeeded in escaping Washington. The president, mortally wounded, was carried to a cheap lodging house opposite Ford's theater. About 7.22 a.m. the next morning, he died the first U.S. president to be assassinated. Booth was a well-regarded actor who was particularly loved in the South before the Civil War. During the war, he stayed in the North and became increasingly bitter when audiences weren't as enamored of him as they were in Dixie. 
along with friends Samuel Arnold, Michael O'Laughlin, and John Surratt, Booth conspired to kidnap Lincoln and deliver him to the South. On March 17, along with George Atzerodt, David Harold, and Lewis Powell, the group met in a Washington bar to plot the abduction of the president three days later. However, when the president changed his plans, the scheme was scuttled. Shortly thereafter, the South surrendered to the Union and the conspirators altered their plan. They decided to kill Lincoln, Vice President Andrew Johnson, and Secretary of State William Seward on the same evening. When April 14 came around, Atzerod backed out of his part to kill Johnson. Upset, Booth went to drink at a saloon near Ford's Theater. At about 10 p.m., he walked into the theater and up to the president's box. Lincoln's guard, John Parker, was not there because he had gotten bored with the play and left his post to get a beer. Booth easily slipped in and shot the president in the back of the head. The president's friend, Major Rathbone, attempted to grab Booth, but he was slashed by Booth's knife. Booth injured his leg badly when he jumped onto the stage to escape, but he managed to hobble outside to his horse. Meanwhile, Lewis Powell forced his way into William Seward's house and stabbed the Secretary of State several times before fleeing. Booth rode to Virginia with David Harold and stopped at the home of Dr. Samuel Mudd, who placed splints on Booth's legs. They hid in a barn on Richard Garrett's farm as thousands of Union troops combed the area looking for them. The other conspirators were captured, except for John Surratt, who fled to Canada. When the troops finally caught up with Booth and Harold on April 26, they gave them the option of surrendering before the barn was burned down. Harold decided to surrender, but Booth remained in the barn, and it went up in flames. Booth was then shot and killed in the burning barn by Corporal Boston Corbett. On July 7, George Asserod, Lewis Powell, David Harold, and John Surratt's mother, Mary, were hanged in Washington. The execution of Mary Surratt is believed by some to have been a miscarriage of justice, although there was proof of Surratt's involvement in the original abduction conspiracy, it is clear that her deeds were minor compared to those of the others who were executed. Her son John was eventually tracked down in Egypt and brought back to trial, but he managed, with the help of clever lawyers, to win an acquittal. April 15. On this date in history, in the year 1947, Jackie Robinson breaks the color barrier. Jackie Robinson, age 28, becomes the first African-American player in Major League Baseball when he steps onto Ebbets Field in Brooklyn to compete for the Brooklyn Dodgers. Robinson broke the color barrier in a sport that had been segregated for more than 50 years. Exactly 50 years later, on April 15, 1997, Robinson's groundbreaking career was honored and his uniform number 42 was retired from Major League Baseball by Commissioner Bud Selig in a ceremony attended by over 50,000 fans at New York City's Shea Stadium. Robinson's was the first-ever number retired by all teams in the league. Jack Roosevelt Robinson was born January 31, 1919 in Cairo, Georgia, to a family of sharecroppers. Growing up, he excelled at sports and attended the University of California at Los Angeles, where he was the first athlete to letter in four varsity sports, baseball, basketball, football, and track. After financial difficulties forced Robinson to drop out of UCLA, he joined the Army in 1942 and was commissioned as a second lieutenant. 
After protesting instances of racial discrimination during his military service, Robinson was court-martialed in 1944. Ultimately, though, he was honorably discharged. After the Army, Robinson played for a season in the Negro American League. In 1946, he spent one season with the Canadian minor league team, the Montreal Royals. In 1947, Robinson was called up to the majors and soon became a star infielder and outfielder for the Dodgers, as well as the National League's Rookie of the Year. In 1949, the right-hander was named the National League's Most Valuable Player and League Batting Champ. Robinson played on the National League All-Star Team from 1949 through 1954 and led the Dodgers to six National League pennants and one World Series in 1955. He was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1962, his first year of eligibility. Despite his talent and success as a player, Robinson faced tremendous racial discrimination throughout his career from baseball fans and some fellow players. Additionally, Jim Crow laws prevented Robinson from using the same hotels and restaurants as his teammates while playing in the South. After retiring from baseball in 1957, Robinson became a businessman and civil rights activist. He died October 24, 1972, at age 53 in Stamford, Connecticut. April 16. On this date in history in the year 1943, hallucinogenic effects of LSD is discovered. In Basel, Switzerland, Albert Hoffman, a Swiss chemist working at the Sandoz Pharmaceutical Research Laboratory, accidentally consumes LSD-25, a synthetic drug he had created in 1938 as part of his research into the medicinal value of lysergic acid compounds. After taking the drug, formerly known as lysergic acid diethylamide, Dr. Hoffman was disturbed by unusual sensations and hallucinations, in his notes, he related his experience. Last Friday, April 16, 1943, I was forced to interrupt my work in the laboratory in the middle of the afternoon and proceed home, being affected by a remarkable restlessness combined with a slight dizziness. At home, I lay down and sank into not unpleasant, intoxicated-like condition characterized by an extremely stimulated imagination. In a dreamlike state with eyes closed, I found the daylight to be unpleasantly glaring. I perceived an uninterrupted stream of fantastic pictures, extraordinary shapes with intense kaleidoscopic play of colors. After some two hours, this condition faded away. After intentionally taking the drug again to confirm that it had caused this strange physical and mental state, Dr. Hoffman published a report announcing his discovery. And so, LSD made its entry into the world as a hallucinogenic drug. Widespread use of the so-called mind-expanding drug did not begin until the 1960s, when counterculture figures such as Albert M. Hubbard, Timothy Leary, and Ken Kesey publicly expounded on the benefits of using LSD as a recreational drug. The manufacture, sale, possession, and use of LSD, known to cause negative reactions in some of those who take it, were made illegal in the United States in 1965. April 17. On this date in history in the year 1970, Apollo 13 returns to Earth. With the world anxiously watching, Apollo 13, a U.S. lunar spacecraft that suffered a severe malfunction on its journey to the moon, safely returns to Earth. 
On April 11, the third manned lunar landing mission was launched from Florida, carrying astronauts James A. Lavelle, John L. Swigert, and Fred W. Hayes. The mission was headed for a landing on the Fra Mauer Highlands of the Moon. However, two days into the mission, disaster struck 200,000 miles from Earth when oxygen tank number two blew up in the spacecraft. Swigert reported to Mission Control on Earth, Houston, we have a problem here. And it was discovered that the normal supply of oxygen, electricity, light, and water had been disrupted. The landing mission was aborted, and the astronauts and controllers on Earth scrambled to come up with emergency procedures. The crippled spacecraft continued to the moon, circled it, and began a long, cold journey back to Earth. The astronauts and mission control were faced with enormous logistical problems in stabilizing the spacecraft and its air supply, as well as providing enough energy to the damaged fuel cells to allow successful reentry into Earth's atmosphere. Navigation was another problem, and Apollo 13's course was repeatedly corrected with dramatic and untested maneuvers. On April 17, tragedy turned to triumph as the Apollo 13 astronauts touched down safely in the Pacific Ocean. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for April 11 through 17. If you want to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio podcasts and more, we invite you to connect with us on social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.